edition of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith. I recently graduated with my Master's of Science and Technology Management, and the person I'm interviewing today is Joe Hahn, who also happened to go through the exact same classes I did. How's it going, Joe? Doing well, thanks. So today, Joe, I'm going to want to talk to you about technology, about how you got into technology, what machines you had at the house, you know, what video games you had at the house. But then also we're really going to want to focus on your path into a bachelor's and then eventually a master's, because I think that's something that I've been lacking with interviews that I have with people. So I guess the first question I always ask everybody is, what was your first taste with technology as, as a child or, or maybe even as a teenager? Really uh, going way, way back, my first introduction to technology was my father's Atari 2600. Okay, the original, not not one of the flashbacks. The original. Machines. It was it was uh, one of the Woodies, mm-hmm. uh, not not the Sears plastic Atari. Right. But um, my dad had probably a hundred Atari games, so we would spend all kinds of time playing on it back in the early '80s. Of course, that led to an early love of not just video games, but technology in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, graduating from Atari to Nintendo and so on. And for the past 33 years, that has continued all the way up to PlayStation 4. But that early love of technology really set me on a path where I knew I wanted to do something with computers. I may not have known what at the time, but I knew it was something. And that was really cemented when my dad bought our first computer. Of course, I had messed around with computers. Uh, fortunately enough, when I was in grade school, mm-hmm. uh, even in kindergarten, we always had an Apple IIe in the classroom, right. which you know kept my attention all the time. I wanted to be on that, playing games as much as possible. And they and they wanted you to be learning how to type on a keyboard, but you wanted to play games, right? Correct. Because that's that, the same way for me too. But you know, any free time that I had, once I finished up paper and pencil work, I wanted to be on the computer <sighs> doing something. And then finally, we brought home maybe a Packard Bell computer, mm-hmm. um, and I would spend a lot of time on it. We didn't have a lot of games, per se, because my father had bought that particular computer for work purposes. Sure. And one of the programs that he brought home was a really early version of a spreadsheet program called Lotus 123. Oh, yeah. And I used Lotus 123 at the tender age of nine to inventory all of my comic books oh yes yes so i had all my comics you know spreadsheeted out by condition year Mm -hmm. all of that Uh, and i really enjoyed doing that Mm -hmm. oddly enough i found it interesting to go through and fill everything out and keep everything in a precise order just so i could reference back to it's not something that i would ever use right Once again, you know, a really early start with something that was essentially a basic database. Right. I do remember when when, when I was growing up, I, ha- I haven't mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, I my mom did buy me a, a program called uh, Comic Book Collector. I remember the box art oh, had, okay. had the Batman 500, you know, when, when Azrael took over Batman for a while during Nightfall and he had the, the super slick Batman suit with the big claws on it and stuff. That was the box cover. So that must have been circa 92, 93. But it was nothing more than a glorified database that had already been set up. Sure. That already had like um, 
the name of the comic, the issue, the date, the the artist, and stuff like that. And so I I too also went through putting in all my comics in that. So I hadn't thought about the spreadsheet aspect, but I definitely did that that program. And I'm sure I still have the the three and a half somewhere that has all that information. <laughs> I, I doubt I could say the same. I would love <laughs> to see that database now, twenty right. years later. But oh yeah, well that's cool. So then you start getting the business aspect of it in there and, and, and being right. able to use it for more than just playing games. Right. And, you know, just basic playing with computers for a while mm-hmm. up until third grade. In third grade, um, it started in second grade, but in third grade, uh, I was chosen for a program called TAG. Mm-hmm. It was talented, talented and gifted, gifted program. Yep. Mm-hmm. And once a week, they would bus the TAG kids to a different school where mm-hmm. we would basically pick a certain program to go through twice a semester Mm -hmm. and i I remember this distinctly because one semester the program that we could pick the programs we could pick from included either computer programming or medieval history and every single person in tag chose medieval history except for one person really i was the only person that did not choose medieval history i chose computer programming you could have chosen both and made your own like D D game <laughs> they let me do it by myself really so while everybody was having their nights and round tables and mm-hmm. all that fun stuff i was programming in basic in third grade wow so i really enjoyed it quite a bit mm-hmm. i learned i learned a lot about you know the the beginning nuances of programming in third grade. Fortunately, since I was all left alone when they did their final presentation, which was a big kings and queens gathering uh, for dinner, they let me uh, join in on that. But Mm -hmm. I did go through the entire programming course that they had offered. Wow. uh, That further cemented the fact that I wanted to work with computers. Sure. Um, Going a little bit further in middle school, my middle school was fortunate enough to not only have a computer lab, but required computer programming courses interesting which were taught in basic was that around here it was it was beverly hills middle school oh wow in seventh grade we were required to take a basic computer programming course and i already had a pretty solid background in that yeah so i got to do a little bit more advanced stuff Mm -hmm. so i've had i've had quite a background in computers especially programming from an early age that's impressive in high school, all of my elective courses, any elective I could take that had to do with computer programming, I took. Mm-hmm. So I learned HTML, C++, C, Visual Basic, took Basic again for a third time, mm-hmm. but it was the prerequisite course. Sure. So I learned a lot about that. Didn't really care much for web programming, but at the time it was just, you know, back in 1996, web programming was opening up TextPad and typing out HTML code. Yeah. Not so much fun. A lot more you can do now. That made me think, you know, I know I'm going to go to college and now I know what I want to do. I want to get into a computer science degree. I want want to work with coding in the sciences. So that's offered at Marshall. I can go to Marshall. Yeah. So going to Marshall, went to go into the CSD, computer science degree. Mm -hmm. And the year that I got to Marshall, it was no longer offered. Yeah, that would probably be 98. It, it was 2000, actually. Oh, okay. They still had some CSD programs, but the program of study itself was right. no longer available to start in. Yeah, when I, I got to do some classes my senior year of high school, which would have been like fall of 97, spring of 98, and I started 
going down to the track of CSD. Right. And then when I came in 98, they said, um, we, um, we've dissolved that option. But here's something called MIS. Right. Interestingly enough, MIS was never presented to me as an option. I had never. Oh, really? I had never considered it, looked into it at all. I wanted, wanted to go into CSD. Mm-hmm. This is not offered. But in its place, we have this multidisciplinary course called IST, Integrated Science and Technology. And of course, you know, me by myself, well, that sounds amazing. I mean, it, it may not be computer science per se, but it is computers and science put together. Let's do it. So that's how I ended up in the IST track. Yeah, I haven't been able to interview Brian yet to find out when they actually created IST, but I'm pretty sure, because I, I ended up graduating in 2001, so I'm pretty sure it maybe had just been in its infancy like when you came in. So I was already knee-deep in the community college at that point. Right. So uh, maybe if I had just waited a little bit longer, I could have uh, got into IST. I think 2000 was the freshman year, not just for me, but for IST as well. So most of the people I've interviewed have talked about what they've normally said was around the time they came in, they had the same problem I did with CSD. That that was the game in town, and then suddenly it was gone. Right. And everyone was told to go to MIS at the time because IST wasn't around. And the experience I had was when I went into MIS, it's mainly a business degree. Right. So I started taking macro and microeconomics. I started taking uh, college algebra, even though I'd already had the math 227, the analytical calculus. They had me like, go back. Right. And I, I went and asked a counselor at one point. I said, when am I going to touch a computer? And she said, well, your third year, once you get all your prereqs done, you'll start touching a computer. And so most people I talked to said, I want to start doing something with computers now, which is why they eventually found out about the community college which they did seem to kind of hide from most people. They didn't really bring it up all the time. Sure. But in your case, you went into IST, so you're the first person I've talked to that went IST. So I'm curious about how you felt your experience was in that regard, because I'm assuming that in IST, you didn't have to wait two years to start touching a computer. No, very, very much so. How you were saying that MIS is like a blend of management and computer Mm -hmm. technology, IST is very much a blend of science and computers. So we started out programming right away. I think C++ was on the docket, IST 160, Mm -hmm. fall semester of your freshman year. So you jumped right in. Right into it. Okay, great. Um, I I was fortunate enough also to have a background from high school Mm -hmm. of C++ because, I mean, it it, it was intense from the get-go. But with that, there were a lot of intense science classes as well. A lot of classes that involved labs, for example, which isn't something that I really expected. I thought a lot more there would be a lot more computer stuff involved, even in the science classes. But no, I'm so you mean chemistry like, labs. Yeah, I guess you had to take a chemistry class along with the chemistry lab. Physics classes, math classes based around mapping of systems, because a lot of from what I gathered, IST was trying to do was create environmental scientists as well as computer scientists, and Several of the people that I've graduated have gone on to more environmental fields. Oh, okay. Interesting. So when you were going through, can you give some highlights about, you mentioned taking a C++ class. Can you give some highlights about other technologies you, you played with? Because well, you, you were already geared for programming, so that worked out great. It, was, it, it did. It worked out well. 
the thing is, is I began to, I, I began to become fatigued with programming, so to speak. Okay. Um, after doing it for so long, you know, throughout school up to that point, it became apparent to me that this is not something that I want to sit down and do for eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to program for the rest of my life. Okay. While it's interesting, I don't want it to be my primary function. Right. So I took kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none approach to my college career. And I dabbled in a lot of the different areas that you could in IST because you could choose different tracks to go down. On the technology side, you could choose database. You could choose networking. You could choose programming. You could choose web programming. You know, you had a lot of different options. And the idea was to specialize in one. Well, what I did was I would do a year down one specific track or maybe a year and a half and then I would change my specialization and I'd go do another year down this track and then I would change my specialization and I knew by the end I would have the credits that I needed to graduate so I got to dip my hands in a lot of different things mm-hmm. I did databases for about a year which was really interesting and has been super super helpful in my career mm-hmm. web programming I did for about a year realized pretty quickly that I didn't care for it. Programming is what I started out with because that was what I thought at first I wanted to do. So I did it for about a year and a half, two years. Sure. And then, you know, in the end, I did networking and graduated with my specialization in networking. So I'm curious about the networking side because when people were graduating around me at Marshall Community Technical College, the time we were still part of Marshall, Several of them were looking at going over to IST. And then I know also probably around 2003, IST created a forensics track. Right. What what I saw, and you know, you can kind of illuminate this for me a bit more, was that on the, on the MCTC side, you ended up taking seven courses that prepared you for the Microsoft MCSE and uh, MCSA. Correct. But then when, when, when those students would transfer over, I believe there was one course called Network Administration over there that Brian was able to give them uh, credit for. And I thought, wow, I'll become, I'm definitely going to have to have like a two plus three, maybe a two plus three and a half. And so when I later came back, I didn't even think about IST. I, I thought about the regions because I didn't think many of my classes were going to be able to find nice fits into sure. IST. So since you specialized in, in networking, I'm, I'm assuming there's more than one network administration class they had then. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely more than one class. Uh, I can't remember the specific names of the classes sure. I took, but uh, Daniel Dementiev was my, basically my network instructor. Mm-hmm. Because in IST, you basically have one instructor that really specializes in your specialization tract. Mm-hmm. Programming, Brian Morgan. Mm-hmm. Uh, network programming. Daniel Dementiev, mm-hmm. but I had him for at least three classes right. uh, involved in networking. Hmm. He was also a database instructor as well. Yeah, I know Brian had also done the 365, because I ended up taking IST 365, which was his his online uh, MySQL database class that he had done. Right, right. Because I did it later on as part of my regents, because it was a 300 or 400 level class that had no prereqs, and sure. so I was already teaching MySQL, so... 
like you going into the basic classes in I'll high school. I'll never forget my, my final project for that class. It was uh, at the time uh, when Grand Theft Auto was real big. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, there was a commercial that I always played for PetsOvernight.com. Oh, yes. So that's what I made. I made PetsOvernight.com for my final project. That's very, very cool. <laughs> I know by, by the time I took it um, in the summer of 08, he already had like predetermined ones you did. Oh, okay. And so... Like he flat out told you what you needed to do, and I think, I think mine was a video game trading website where you had to be able to have a database of your video games based on your different systems, sure. and then you know types of cartridges or CDs, and then also the ability that if if it gets traded to somebody else, what the price was and stuff like that. So, sure. uh, petsovernight.com. I just I had to rent a vehicle the other day, and we had to rent a caravan, and that they they said. I was taking two people, me and another person, and I said, can I have something small like a, a Nissan Altima? And they go, well, we have an excursion or we have a caravan. And I said, well, I'll take the one that's not the Maibatsu monstrosity. <laughs> so, uh, And they didn't get the reference. But, uh, but yeah, I did not want something that got three miles to the gallon. Sure. So so you, you ended up doing your, your classes there, and uh, you ended up kind of doing what I did at the community college. I ended up going around and I took the programming stuff. I took the web stuff. I took the network stuff. Like I stayed in the community college for three years. I just cleaned them out. Right. And so it sounds like you kind of did the same thing. I did the same thing for the most part. It it did take me five years to graduate from IST, Mm -hmm. but that was not uncommon at all. I think everyone that I started with that actually did go through the program in its entirety graduated Mm -hmm. with me and it took them five years as well. Okay. So once you finish that, well, had you already been working by chance in the technology field while you were going to school, or what were you doing? Yes and no. I started out working uh, at a local call center that one of the projects that they had was Dell Technical Support. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the amount of people that tell me they worked doing the Dell or the iOmega or even further back, the, the free DSL. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who were doing the, the Dell Tech Support. The yeah. Dell Tech Support... I am going to chalk up as one of the best experiences that I've had uh, as far as furthering my career because Mm -hmm. it has absolutely, hands down, helped me so much when going to future jobs Mm -hmm. because I learned so much about computer architecture through hands-on that way, and that experience on my resume opened so many doors for me. And Michael Dell has actually signed my checks twice now because I ended up working for Dell almost 10 years later in the future. Oh wow! Well, I knew I knew at the time. A lot of people told me when they when they'd worked there, and when I was going through the classes at um, at Marshall in the community college, a lot of the people in the second year of Scott Nicholas's MCSE program were working there at Dell because I had a friend that went through the the free DSL campaign, and then Dell came along. But then I think after a while, Dell shipped their stuff overseas. That's how I lost my job. Yeah, and, and then um, and then also I know iOmega was even having some support there through them as well, mm. I think, at one point. So I would imagine that doing that probably gave you a lot of great experience with, like, help desk and, and, and troubleshooting. That, that's exactly what, what I'm referring to because I got to learn how a help desk operates, not only gaining experience fixing computers, but gaining experience in an environment where you're not face-to-face with the customer fixing their PC. You're helping troubleshoot and fix their equipment over the phone, which is something that we do a lot now. Mm-hmm. 
I'm the client service manager at Marshall Health, so I work very, very closely with the help desk. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was on the help desk. So that experience helped me when I moved here because Marshall Health Campus stretches from Huntington to South Charleston to Logan, West Virginia, Coalfield, West Virginia, Ashland, Kentucky. It, you, you aren't always going to be face-to-face. Correct. Hmm. And that, that was hugely helpful in, in learning you know, how that kind of operation works. So once you ended up getting your bachelor's, were you already done? Had you already been let go because they moved the stuff over to India at that point with Dell? Yes. When I graduated with my bachelor's, I had been moved to another campaign. I don't know if you remember back in the mid-2000s, right as the big switch to high speed was happening, Net Zero. Oh, yes. I worked for the Net Zero campaign. That was the free dial-up service. That was the free dial-up service. Actually, at that time, Net Zero had a free service and they had a paid service. So I worked for them trying to get people signed up for the paid service from the free service, Mm -hmm. which is virtually impossible because at this point in time, cable internet had become affordable for the general public. Right. So my experience was basically canceling people's accounts. Well, I think it was also John McAfee who said at one point that... um, when you have two competing products and one's offered for free and one's offered for, for pay, why is a person going to go to the pay one if there's not a, a noticeable increase? So maybe they already had net zero. They're going to do the free version anyway. They're not. Why are they going to pay for a dial-up service that's not going to be much faster because dial-up only hit like 56K if you were lucky, theoretically. Right. Well, the idea was the free service is only for 10 hours a month. Oh, I see. I <laughs> so, see. That's, that's how you hook that's them. That's how up. you hook them. Mm-hmm. Get, get them hooked on a service that was generally okay for dial-up service. I'll give mm-hmm. them that. And, and make and, them pay $10 a month to have it unlimited. And, and these days, in 10 hours a month, that would allow you to download a one megabyte uh, postage stamp, <laughs> little little uh, animated GIF or something like that. Correct. Took forever. So then after you got your bachelor's, you were working on the, on the Net Zero campaign. How did that shake out? Where did you go from there? Did any contacts you had at that company help get you the next job? Because usually networking comes up as being a really big, important thing in in these talks. Right. I would say from that job, no. That job was not the best job I've had by far, but I was able to get a job. I've always been interested in the healthcare field because my parents worked for Cabell Huntington Hospital. Oh, okay. So I've grown up around this hospital. I was able to get a job working in their film file room with the added benefit that I was doing support for the emergency room, IT support. Okay, so like in the emergency room, like I guess they'd have computers maybe to type in, you know, about the patient information. Order entry, physician order entry, stuff like that. I mean, okay. they had computers on rolling carts. And if something were to go down, obviously the emergency room is high traffic. Mm-hmm critical importance. So they needed somebody available all the time who could very quickly get there to troubleshoot the problem. And I, I think, worked weekends, so I think film file room probably you were in charge of using a database to figure out where patient X's X rays were housed and stuff like that. Right. Okay. And I, I would use their electronic medical record to look up information that they would need for surgeries. Mm-hmm. And that was really I, I would later find out that that would be incredibly helpful for future jobs since obviously I'm working for the academic medical center now. Sure. But that environment of healthcare IT, I was able to 
kind of get a grounding in that uh, for later. Okay. I worked there for a little while and then transitioned to working in a warehouse of medical films as opposed to just a file room. Would that still be for one company? or It was a company, a local company in town called Amos Systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they did storage of medical films because obviously a hospital doesn't have the capacity to store all of the medical films that they print out. Right. I actually was uh, over two warehouses full of medical films, which I was inventorying into databases. So I'm guessing in that case, you probably had multiple hospitals or dentists or doctor's offices. You were housing all their stuff. They might call you and say, we need you to pull this stuff based on our client. And so it was almost a contracted service. It you, was a contracted service. Yeah, that's you were correct. Storage and retrieval for that's them. That's correct. And that's what I would do. I would use the database, look up uh, the films that I needed, pull those, deliver them to the hospital, go back, update the database all the time. Like, and, like a check in, check out service, almost like a library in that correct. regard, like checking out books. Correct. Mm-hmm. Except it was patient films. Yes. Now, just like how Net Zero lost market share to broadband internet. Mm-hmm. This is around the time when I would say, I, I believe 2008, it was basically mandated that everybody has to have an electronic medical record. So was that HIPAA that did that? Well, HIPAA was back in 1996. And while it started to lay the foundation for electronic medical record access, mm-hmm. it, it was much later uh, in the 2000s, the middle, late 2000s, where it was mandated that you have to have an electronic medical record. Okay. So around this time, we're starting to get down to the wire where medical practices needed to have something in place mm-hmm. or start to get something in place. And at this time, Cabell was moving away from printed out x-ray films right. to a PAC system, which is electronic films, basically, where you can pull up the x-ray on a computer screen and look at it. So they were actually sinking the money in to store it themselves? Because I would have thought the company you worked for might have said, We'll start our own CAS, our content address storage system, and then you can, when you need it, we can just fax it to you. We can send it to you via email, that type of system. That might have been a good idea. Uh, That was very forward-thinking on my part. That would be very (laughs) forward-thinking on your part. Unfortunately, Amos was not this forward-thinking, and Mm. interestingly enough, Amos is now out of business. Mm. But what happened was we stopped getting requests for medical records because they would go back to the hospital, get scanned into PACs, and they'd never end up back with us because we wouldn't need to store them anymore except for archival purposes. And at the end of a certain period of time, I think it was seven years and Mm -hmm. then 15 years for certain types of film, Mm -hmm. those films would just get recycled. I see. Well, yeah, I know it's, I don't know the, the whole technology of it, but I know that now when I go to my dentist, he'll actually go and sometimes he'll take actual x-rays of my teeth and stuff. And so he can show it to me, but then he's like, watch this. And he can do something to that x-ray film, that physical x-ray film that allows it to be reused. But he ends up, by the time he does it, it gets scanned in on a system and I go back to my little waiting room area and they can pull it up there. So it does seem like on some of the stuff they do there, there is a go-between. I would imagine there's suddenly an x-ray scanner, you know, that just does right. it all in one, like a, like a camera. I actually it, worked with one of those in the file room. Oh, really? Um, where we would get the films and, and feed the film through, mm-hmm. and it would scan it into the database. And then was your film reusable? No. Oh, okay. Some, Interestingly had, enough, mm-hmm. the, the thing about x-ray films is they contain low quantities of silver. So mm-hmm. what would happen is they would sell the x-ray films back to Amos after they had passed their archival date. Right. Amos would then refine them to pull the silver out of the x-ray films. 
it makes sense. The fact that it's a film, when I worked at Walmart at one point, we used to have to constantly do a, a silver recovery because we actually had a film processing machine and sure. everything. So the silver nitrate film was, right. was going ahead and pull that off. And they always said, you can't pour that waste right down into the uh, into the sink because that'll, that'll kill the fishies. Right. Uh, we got to go ahead and, and pull that out. And so then you pull out this giant, what looked like a scuba uh, oxygen tank. And that sucker was heavy because it was filled full of the silver in this giant filter it had. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely aware that you can you can get you a little bit of money from those different films right. on recycling. So then Amos, Amos just kind of still did the same thing they did, but well, pe- Amos did other things besides just film storage. They also sold radiological supplies mm-hmm. uh, like barium, uh, different chemicals, right? Uh, refurbished radiology equipment, mm-hmm. but. I think a big part of their business was the film storage because I know that I personally oversaw two full warehouses full of films. And so eventually people just stopped bringing it back to you to store it because they'd scanned it in. They were able to recycle it themselves because now it's digitized. And and any future x-rays that they would take would go into the patient's electronic medical record. So there was no need Mm -hmm. to continue using that service. Right. So then eventually did you move over to maybe the, the, supply side or the equipment side or did they just close that down and you decided to move on really i moved on Mm -hmm. it became apparent that that it it wasn't a business model that was going to require my service forever Mm -hmm. so i I moved to a new position back with another call center but this time not involved with the actual call center making of calls or receiving of calls but Mm -hmm. with the operations side i was the kind of data analyst and web administrator for the internal network website uh, of a call center here in Huntington, which was great because I got to work with programming and mm-hmm. I got to work with databases again. I hadn't I used my rudimentary knowledge of HTML and by this time some programming web programming languages had come out that I was not familiar with and I got to learn those. Mm-hmm. Things like Ajax calls. Mm-hmm. I knew nothing of them and I left knowing about them. Right. But I helped manage that internal intranet and their database for client level service and reporting. Okay. Well, you know, I want to want to ask you because people listening to this may not have much of an idea of, of what we're talking about. They may not have much of experience, but my eyes were opened up at one point because I had a student who worked for a call center and I don't, I don't, it had to be around here. I don't remember who it was, but he was more of a, of a managerial type. And so when I thought of a call center, I thought of someone in a cubicle with a headset on who's either sending out calls or receiving calls and they're having to help people. As a manager, he would sometimes sit in my class, and I don't know how I should have felt about this because he was doing his work instead of listening to me, but he was able to log into a a web page system and whatever his role was, he could see all these calls that were either currently taking place or had taken place. And his job, I guess, was more of like a quality assurance. He had, when they always tell you on the phone, this call may be monitored for, for quality assurance. His job, I think, was to like each day go through and pick randomly 12 different calls to check. Go in and write up information about that call. Was it good? What did the, did the customer service representative do good things, bad things, that type of thing? But I was just amazed that he was sitting in my classroom over in Corbley. He pulled up the system and he could double click on an actual thing and right there it was playing like a wave file or whatever of a call 
And he goes, this is my job. My job is to sit here and go back and listen to these calls, make sure they're all okay, make sure the customer's being served and that type of thing. So when you were saying you were working on the websites, I wondered if that was some of the, the back-end stuff you were possibly having to do yourself. Was there any type of, whatever that is, like maybe you could call it like a, a call manager? I don't mean to get that confused with like voice over IP. Sure. But we, we did have a call management system, and mm-hmm. part of the call management system was the feature that you're talking about because I know that our team leads and mm-hmm. managers had to audit X number of calls for okay. the people on their teams. Then he probably was a team lead then, I guess, at that point. Right. And the call manager itself actually would store those calls. Okay. So what I worked with was our own homegrown intranet. Mm-hmm used for different types of agent tracking beyond just call stuff. I would actually pull reports out of the call system and then use macros that I had programmed to pull the information into a format that could be used and then upload it to our database, which would then be you know, aggregated and indexed in whatever way it needed to be by the website. So maybe you're able to create the reports, the weekly reports that say, you know, we had this many calls, we reached this much of a threshold, we're going to make our projections for next week be 10% more calls or something like that. Right. So you were you were taking the data and pulling information out of it, meaningful information. Right. And that, that information would then be used to create client level reports that I would then send to the client, which mm-hmm. in this case was Sprint. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did that job end shake out because obviously you're not there anymore i actually really liked that job Mm -hmm. i enjoyed the aspect of working directly with the client and i found out that i really just love mounds of data Mm -hmm. and filtering through all that data to make it useful i really enjoyed that aspect of it Mm -hmm. obviously though a call center doesn't pay that well right i mean we all probably know this that you know, that's, that's not a career path that I saw myself going down. Sure. I was fortunate enough to be offered a position with Marshall Health as desk side support technician, mm-hmm. which I took because I knew that that would be a foot in the door in this industry. So is that considered help desk, basically? It is help desk. Okay. I was a help desk technician for the med school. So you were able to pull up your experience that you had doing the Dell campaign. And, and use that and leverage that. Oh, so much leverage that gave me because the entire Marshall Medical Facility was Dell. Was Dell. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I didn't think about that. I just thought more of like, you know, the customer service angle, how to talk to somebody. I was to- able to leverage that as well. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I knew Dell architecture, I had worked in the customer service industry in various call centers. I have been around hospitals all my life and worked for them now. All of that coalesced together mm-hmm. to get me a job using my really base level knowledge of computers hmm. and then all of my specialized knowledge has come full circle now continue climbing the ladder here well i know you know to kind of put our two tracks together i end up graduating in the summer of 2008 with a regents degree and i i got that bachelor's degree because they would not hire me full-time at the community they wouldn't consider me at the community college sure. unless I at least had a bachelor's degree so and they'd also said look we're, we're going to post a position soon so time was of the essence for me so I went the regions route I mean I think at one point I busted out the last 30 hours in spring and summer I did like 18 in spring 12 in summer while I was teaching there as a full-time temporary so wow. I was burning the candle at both ends 
But I got hired on full time there in the fall of '08, and everyone kept tell, telling me, you know, you should you should get your masters, you should get your masters. And um, I waited, and I kind of feel a bit like a fool of waiting because we were still part of Marshall at that point. So I would have had access to tuition waivers every right. single semester. Right. But I waited. And so I believe I started on my master's, I think, in the fall of 2010. I think we started at the same time. Really? I think so. Because I, I, I never took more than two classes a semester. Now, I, I take that back. I started in 2011. Okay. Well, I know that, like, my, you know, to, to talk shop here with Joe for a second, when you, when you first took the TMs, usually you were supposed to take uh, 610 and then 612. Right. The first one I remember was the innovation one. Right. The the 612 was the, uh, oh my gosh, the 612 was the, the engineering economic analysis. Oh, that class. Yeah. So I didn't have those back to back because the time she taught it interfered with one of the classes I taught at, at Mount West. And so um, I kind of had to take things out of order. But I remember I, I went ahead and, and took care of her two online classes first. That was kind of like dipping my toes in the water. Sure. With the with the two basically security plus classes, but right, you know, I went back because I had an RBA, which was a Regents Bachelor's of Arts. When I attained that in two thousand eight, they didn't even have they didn't even have minors or concentrations or anything. So when I stuck that on a on a resume, an employer was gonna if if I if I even got in the door, they were gonna go, what is what this? is this? Right. So my biggest concern was making sure that I actually had some degree besides an associate's that I could say information technology. So that's why I chose to go the technology management route. And then basically everyone in Drinko Library had also done technology management. Brian had done it. Terry Tomlin Bird, uh, Jan Fox, all these people had done it. So I thought apparently it's worthwhile. And, you know, you could become a CIO with it, that type of thing. So that was what led me back to, to finally get into it. What led you back into doing a master's degree? Well, there's two answers to that, and one of them may sound strange. Okay. I actually really enjoy school. I, I really wasn't satisfied after being out of school for a couple of years, mm-hmm. to the point where I started having dreams about being back in school. And I knew that the time was probably really ripe to go back to school because I was married, I had settled into, into the family life, mm-hmm. and I had plenty of free time because I had no children at that point. So, But I knew that I was going to have children soon. The roots were going to get deeper, so you better do it now. Correct. I knew that it, really the timing was right. I was in a position here at Marshall Health where I could get tuition assistance from the company to go back to school, and I knew that the upward mobility possibility at this organization existed. And the more valuable I could make myself, the better. That's true. So it, it really was a matter of, t- of the timing being right. So did you have to take the GRE? I did. I didn't. You didn't have to take the GRE? No. I. Um, well, you gotta, you got to keep in mind, although it kind of seems like you and I are about the same age based on what you were saying, but I had, had finished my associates in 2001, and I was immediately already working in the workforce in 2001 doing consulting around here. Actually, I... I did a lot of installations for at home when mm-hmm. Century Cable was around here doing I went to the houses and actually put in the network cards and stuff for people. Okay. So when I went to apply for the technology management degree, it was between that one 
and the adult technical education. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I looked at the adult technical education was because there was a possibility of not having to do uh, a dissertation or a, a thesis or a capstone. Sure. But the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, l- let's say my job at Mount West becomes problematic. If something happens, downturn economy, you know, that would never happen in West Virginia. You know, coal's going to live forever. Right. Yeah, not like the situations we're kind of in these days. If I go to an employer and they go, adult technical education, we're not an education institution. I thought I was going to get more bang for my buck with the technology management option. Sure. So I went that route. When I looked online, it said you had to complete like two of these three things. So you either had to, I think, have like a 3.5 GPA in your undergrad. Uh, you needed to have already got a bachelor's degree from Marshall. And then they wanted you to take the GRE. They wanted you to have one of the, the levels. One of the last little things they said at the bottom is, if you had 10 years of experience All right. in the field, you could write this whole letter explaining your your experience and stuff like that. So I guess I was one of the people that decided, hey, I don't really want to go take a standardized test. <laughs> I'll take the hour and a half to two hour effort to write the letter. And I wrote it and I sent it in and Dr. Cristofero took it, I guess. And so... I didn't have to worry about the GRE. I, so. I, I'm quite jealous of this. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you not see that part? Because it sounds well, like I, you I'll had be honest. Starting in 2011, I wouldn't have had 10 years experience. Oh, okay. Because my first real technology job would have been in 2002. Mm-hmm. So I would have been right at nine years. You're so close. I was so close, but. Yeah. So, I mean, I. I don't know. I'm, I'm happy because that was one less hurdle I had to worry about. Right. And I could start a little bit faster. I will agree with you. I, I don't think it's weird. At first, when you think about going back to college, it feels daunting. It feels like, oh, my goodness, this is a journey. I'm, I'm going to start now. It's going to take forever. But I will say that there was a bit of a comfort uh, that I liked when I was on the journey that I could say, I'm three classes down. Oh, and, absolutely. You know, these, these nine classes to go or whatever. It's kind um, of a shame that this is podcast because I still have my paper that I printed out day one mm-hmm. that has the class list for the Technology. TM program. Mm-hmm. And I used to keep it at my desk right. and up beside me. Mm-hmm. And as I would complete a class, I would highlight it and put a check mark beside it. Hmm. And I kept that same paper for, what, the three years that it took me to graduate from the TM program. And right. so much satisfaction mm-hmm. highlighting and checking off another class. Well, I know I made sure, I don't think you went this route, because I think you went more the health informatics route, but I made sure that when I was planning out my schedule, I looked at the classes I would need that would allow me to get both the, the TMMS as well as the, um, the information security certificate. So I think... I'm one class short. When I, when I graduated, my concentration was information technology for my master's. And then I took the classes that also happened to be a subset that gave me the information security. So I had both aspects of it. Right. I mean, it was it was really good. I have to say, for anyone out there who would be possibly thinking about going back and doing a master's program, the advice that I got up front was, it's a lot of writing. It is a lot of writing. I will it, definitely reiterate that. It, it is a lot of writing. But the one thing I'll tell you is, everyone assumes it's going to be harder and I don't really think that I felt that it was much harder. What I think was, and it was semi a bit of a letdown for me, was that all of your technical stuff came in your bachelor's. By the oh, time, absolutely. By the time we got to the master's, 
and it may just be because we were doing technology management. I think that was more geared towards maybe MIS people who were business people. And let's explain to you some technology since you're going to manage it. So like for us, it was like the flip side. What we were hearing about was managing technical people and we were technical people. And so several of the classes that I took, one of which I took was, which was the OSI model. We, We ended up doing definitely did network plus we did security plus. Yeah, two classes on Security Plus, one on the physical security and one on the right. the, per, the people security. So when it came to the technology side, those classes were just a cakewalk because I was like, I got this. But there were people in our classes that were they were definitely struggling because right. this, they were business people and this is the first time they saw stuff. So I would tell people out there that um, you probably won't have nearly as many tests as you think you're going to have you're going to be writing a lot of papers you're going to, have to do a lot of uh, analysis a lot of research yeah and that and that was the biggest thing for me when i finally did my capstone that is what freaked me out the most the the, the research because i just thought where am i going to find like 40 different sources that i can pull information for to actually write this paper and i did it and my paper ended up being something like 193 pages it was gigantic and and I just thought, how was I ever going to write that much? Most of that was the time I needed to explain what I had done. Sure. Because I made a database that had somewhere in the area of 25 tables. And I had to go in there and ex- I wanted to make sure I explained systematically what all those did, why they were normalized out that far, and then also throw in the, the web interface side with the PHP and the AJAX, how it, how it interoperated, writing it for someone who had no clue what a computer was. So right. in that in that case, I felt comfortable talking that technical stuff. But, uh, but yeah, the research portion of it is what really scared me the most. I think one of the things that I really enjoyed getting out of the graduate work as well was just being introduced to so many concepts that I had never heard of before, management concepts in particular. You know, ITSM, ITIL, Mm-hmm. project management in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Those were things that I didn't know about that I found fascinating. Right. And that's not something that you ever talked about in your undergrad because it was so technical oriented. Right. I actually went back two years or a year after I graduated and got my project management professional certification oh, just okay. because it was, I found it so interesting in grad school and sure. started looking into it. And one of the things that I did well, actually, what I did my capstone on when I was in grad school was implementing an electronic health record for a hospital, mm-hmm. which obviously fits into what I'm doing now. Totally. Did that as the capstone. We didn't actually do it. Went out and got my project management professional certification, and now I'm on a project implementing an electronic health record for university eye surgeons. That's awesome. So it all really comes full circle. You know, what you learn, you'll... you'll You'll find things that you'll be interested in that you never even knew existed right? when you're going back to school. And now that's become integrated into my actual job. I will say that for me, from my experience, I didn't know about the different quality methods necessarily. I didn't know about Kaizen. Sure, Kaizen. And, and Six Sigma yeah. and, and ITIL and all those. But there were a lot of times when, especially in the uh, the project management aspect, because when I had project management, Dr. Christofero taught it that semester. It wasn't Dr. Larson at the time. So so I only took one class physically. And that was another reason that I thought was an amazing selling point of the technology management option that I had no clue about originally, which was 
I didn't want to have to drive to South Charleston. Right. Because the classes took place 30 minutes after I finished classes at Mount West. And I didn't want to fight traffic from Huntington to Charleston. Right. So there was only one class that I had to take on the Huntington campus, and that was Dr. Larson's class that you and I took. The um, Right. That was the only class that I took physically as well. Management of Organizational Behavior. Yep. Oh, that's right, because you were in the same project management I was because you did the beer, I think. Yes, it was your, wine, actually. It was wine. Okay. I knew you were doing some, some micro-brewing of some sort. Right. Or f- fermenting in that case. But um, Somebody else in our class actually did beer. Okay. Then, yeah, I, right. I do remember someone doing some beer, and they talked about, like, the first batch not being so good, and they, right. they were having to redo it. Yeah. But uh, it was amazing because the classes would take place over what you might think of as, as a WebEx or the technology we were using was called Wimba or Blackboard Collaborate. It became to be known. But I could sit in my office with a like a gamer's headset on with headphones and a microphone, and I was able to attend class while she taught up in South Charleston. And that was extremely convenient for me. And like we say, almost all the classes except for that one class is on Huntington campus. And so many more perks that I would have thought happened because the fact that they were in South Charleston, I didn't pay Huntington campus fees. Right. So I didn't have to pay for, like, you know, all that extra student services stuff for football games I wasn't going to at the time. So there was all these nice little perks that worked out in that regard. Since they did have the option to go to class as well, because these weren't just online classes. They were classes that were just broadcast, and you had the option of either being in class or attending virtually. Yeah, they called them virtual classes. They called them virtual classes. So you still got a degree that says nothing about it being online. Yeah. Not to disparage any online degrees at all. Right. But, you know, some employers might see that and wonder about it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that. Well, I thought you were going to bring up the other perk, which is since you could choose to attend on campus if you desired, from a fee standpoint, they also couldn't necessarily charge it as an online web class because... Correct. Dr. Cristofero fought the fact that what if the person actually does physically show up for this class? Why are you going to charge them more than a traditional fee? Right. So the virtual class aspect did not have an additional convenience fee put on it for web. And I really liked that too. As did I. Because I definitely took advantage of uh, always showing up online and not having to necessarily pay extra for that ability. But yes, this class was not a traditional online course. We still met every single day at a certain time. And if you had to give presentations, you gave them online with your team. You had just practiced up the night before of who was going to say what, and and your presentation was up there on the screen. And when you wanted to go to the next slide, you told her next slide, and, and right. you went. And so, yeah, the entire thing was all set up. So the only time I ever visited the South Charleston campus was the day I gave my capstone. That was the only time I ever drove to South Charleston. I think I went in once or twice, but it was to do some sort of final presentation. Just because I like to be in control of changing my own slides. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, I was totally totally okay with her doing it. Sure. The thing I always found. I think I ended up starting to let her do it, too, after I realized that, you know, this is fine, too. I always found my problem was she'd say, now, this is going to need to be like 10 to 15 minutes. And and my biggest problem was the fact that, like, I could have talked for 25 minutes. Oh, sure. And I probably did a lot of times, too. So I I get a little wordy. So, yeah, you had the people who were totally scared to speak, and then you have me who sits in the classroom and, and lectures and troubleshoots with students all day long. I'm all about speaking. And here we are talking on a podcast. So, yeah, I'm definitely all about speaking all day long. Right. But, um, no, when I did the project management, it lucked out for me 
when I had gone through MCTC's network admin classes, there was a time when Microsoft did an amazing job in the 2000 curriculum of teaching project management. Like there were there were classes that were administering and implementing classes, and then there were classes on designing an Active Directory network, designing a network infrastructure. And so when they did those, they went through and they talked about you got to go interview the client. You got to figure out what the business needs are based mm-hmm. on what they say. When they tell you they have two locations and they want to make sure if the WAN link goes down between those two locations that all the machines can still work, you have to translate that into meaning I need to have a domain controller down there. I need to have a DHCP server down there. So I, I got to hand it at that, that point to Microsoft for the fact that the designing classes really gave me a lot of, of uh, project management experience that I would not have gotten in most other classes at the time, I guess. So so when we were hearing about that, I was like, yep, got to have admin, you know, administration buy-in, all that stuff I knew. But I'll tell you, the class that really put the fear of God into me was the engineering economic analysis class. Absolutely. TM612 because it was night and day. That one, class was terrifying. One side of the class we talked about, um, well, now I can't even remember what the one side was. I did really good on the one side. <laughs> I think we talked about dimming and about the different the different management styles you could do possibly, but then suddenly we started using that secondary book, which was the math side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, it's this little tiny book, and it's like the worst book in the world because we had to talk about how to calculate interest and perpetual interest, and it was blowing my mind. I, w- I always figured myself a math person. I always went to Math Field Day and loved Math Field Day, but oh my goodness, I was stumped. And I was so happy we had that first section first oh, and that I'd done so well absolutely. in that first section because I thought this will be the class that completely tanks my grade. Right. And so, wow, yeah, I struggled through it. And I would have to think my absolute favorite class, which I would have never have thought, was Dr. Larson's. Uh, Dr. Larson's Management of uh, Organizational Behavior. Boy, that that was a very different class than what I thought it would be going into it. it w- I agree. We we did both uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and then we had a book on the management of organizational behavior. So first he talked about how you manage your own life and then how you manage other people's lives. How can you manage somebody else if you can't manage yourself? Yeah, and there were times when I would leave that class and I would feel like I had been in church no doubt no and, doubt and, and, I, and i don't i don't mean it in a preachy way i no, mean not like at all you, you or or maybe i should say like you. it was so so introspective and self-reflective mm-hmm. that class or like almost like a yoga class or something you left it questioning the way you look at things mm-hmm. which you know he wanted to make you a better manager by making you a better person right so yeah that was that was an absolutely amazing class. Really eye-opening. Yeah. And so that was that was one of my Here, last here's an, classes. Here's an interesting follow-up to that. Uh-huh. Right before I was going to go take my project management certification, mm-hmm. I took a project management kind of refresher course. It was a five-day course on project management, the entire body of knowledge taught by Eldon Larson. Really? Yes. Nice. So was that something like a, like at a New Horizons or an, an online training in that regard? No, it was actually in Marmette. I went oh, okay. out to, it was on AEP's training campus. Mm-hmm. AEP kind of sponsored it a little bit because they wanted a lot of their project managers to be certified. Mm-hmm. So they rented out one of their buildings to let Dr. Larson do that course, and then you could pay your fee and come in and take it as well. Very cool. 
But very cool. Yeah, he took a very similar approach to that. Now, obviously, that's a little bit more technical, so there was a lot more yeah. to it. But definitely a Dr. Larson yeah, refresher course. Because that, yeah, so you, yeah, you were lucky because he also would normally teach the project management class. And now I'm wondering how that would have how that would have felt to be in that project management course. Like you say, it's it's much more technical than what he was talking about in the other class, but uh, it would have been very interesting. At first, I'd have been like, oh, I gotta go to campus, but but looking back now, sure. now I'm like, yeah, that would have been, that'd definitely been worth it. So, and I'll never forget that that chart, the learning styles, leadership styles right. chart. There was like a hundred and- How can you possibly forget that chart? 140 <laughs> blanks we had to memorize and then be able to put back in there. That right. was, yeah, that became- That uh, was the first test. Mm-hmm. Like 140 he, blanks. Like he gave it to you the first day. He's like, you're gonna need to know this. Yep. And so that was pretty daunting. So, so now that you and I are both uh, graduate with our TM degrees, what, what's it look like for you now, Joe? So, I mean, you started here as a help desk person, but I guess you rose up. This is a very nice office for a help desk employee. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, right now, I'm like I said, I'm the client service manager. What I do is I'm kind of looking over the, the, the client infrastructure. Okay. We're talking server, client. We're talking computer. At first, I thought, wow, you're kind of back in the same boat you were when you were working at that, that last call center. I thought you meant you were doing client relations. Like, for example, you were talking with Dell and saying, right. you know, our people are calling X number of people for you a day and they're resolving this stuff. You mean actually you're over computer, client the computers, client, computer, Windows 7, Windows 8 environment. That infrastructure. I see. Right. So you're probably having to do Windows deployment services. Yes, or, we use Case. I love Case. I've actually someone else had talked about using Case because that's the Dell product that allows you to push that out. Correct? Yes, Case is absolutely my best, my my most favorite tool in the world. And it seems like from from talking with people about that, it integrates in a lot of things that you would normally get in a in a non Dell environment from say System Center Configuration Manager. You can do a computer inventory. You can do software inventory. You can and keep track of your licenses, that type keep of track thing. Of your licenses, you can image machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it, it has shaved so many man hours off of support uh, for us. And, you know, we have 1,500 computers spread over a 300-mile radius. Mm-hmm. When I first started, we had to manually touch everything. Well, I would also think, too, you all probably have a very large virtual implementation. I would think... You're doing VDI, right? Virtual desktop infrastructure? We are not doing virtual desktop infrastructure yet, actually. Um, oh, you're not? We do have a virtualized application infrastructure that we use right. in order to get to very few web-based applications that we use, right. like the electronic medical record, the practice management solution that we use, other things that used to be offered through Citrix. Well, I mean, maybe maybe it's because the hospital is broken up differently, and that's my ignorance in that regard, but if, if I came here and I was in a waiting room I, th- I think I've seen they just basically have a hockey puck. They have they don't have a real they don't have a real tower. They've got a hockey puck here, and they've got a dumb terminal basically there that's pulling down on on a, on a workstation like a Weiss client. Yeah, so yes, we do actually have Weiss clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, is that integrated, or are you simply connecting up to like a Citrix server? Wouldn't, wouldn't no, that they're be- not Citrix. They are virtual desktops, but we've only got. About 400 of these. Oh, okay. So this infrastructure is much, much smaller. Okay. 
Okay. So yes, we do kind of have a virtual desktop structure. It's not huge. Right. These are mostly, uh, these Weiss clients are mostly inside of exam rooms. Yeah. And they're just to get to the electronic health record. They don't really right. do anything else. Right. Well, you wouldn't want to leave a computer unattended in there anyway from a right. security standpoint. So I think that makes perfect sense. Right. We're actually looking into into implementing some biometrics as well mm -hmm. for added security. That's cool. Uh, going to single single sign-on with biometrics, okay. which we're pretty excited about. So looking back at your, at your trajectory and your path through everything IT, do you have any takeaways or any advice for people out there that might be starting their journey and, and trying to trying to go down a path maybe not similar to yours but still looking back are the things that you're saying that you say to yourself i wish i would have done this sooner or i wish i would have gotten this experience or just to highlight on some things you talked about where having that help desk experience working for for dell at that call center ended up helping you out here. You know, that's the biggest takeaway that I've got from this entire journey is everything you touch in your career from working the cash register somewhere to working at a warehouse where you might touch a database daily. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff can eventually feed back into your technology career because I'm in a position now where everything I've done in the past I can relate back to. So don't take any of it for granted. If you're working with technology, wherever you're working, know it inside and out. Because you never know when you're going to be doing something where you're going to reference back to that and think, man, it's, it's so great that I was able to do that then because now I know what I need to do. I think that's great advice. I, I, I really think it's great advice. I had a, a guy who's working now at the West Virginia Department of Education, and he applied for the job, and I asked him, I said, how many years of experience do they require? And he said five years of experience. And during the interview, I'd done some quick mental math to figure out that he'd only been at what I considered to be a full-on computer job for four years. And I said, you've only been there for four years at that uh, consulting job. Where'd you get your other, your other time from? And he said, well, if you remember my first job I said was, was working for an automotive company doing tech support for, I think he said it was NGK. And he goes, at the time, I didn't think it was much, but looking at that now, that was the extra year and a half that I was able to put on this resume to give me that job. So every job does matter. You do get something from every job. It's just not based on pay. There's a lot of other things, experience and all that, that you rack up as well. So exactly. very, experience very useful. It is, is very key and make sure that you, you're grabbing everything you can wherever mm -hmm. you're at. So lastly, before we, we end this, over your experiences at the different call centers and stuff, do you have any um, memorable moments, times where you just like, I'll never do that again, kicking yourself, troubleshooting issues, client issues, is this a cup holder, you know, anything? Because I, I have a few uh, stories that I could tell. Um, one, mm -hmm. I'll tell one where I still feel bad. Okay. I, 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 I'll never forget this because I still feel kind of like a cad for this. But I was working for Dell and got a... This was when I was working for their laptop division or their portables division. We couldn't say laptop because somebody had gotten burnt by keeping their laptop in their lap. So don't call it a laptop. Call it a portable. Oh, because you don't want to sit it on your lap. Right. I see. It had gotten too hot and burnt them. Wow. So we had to call them portables. Mm -hmm. But anyway, somebody had called in with a portable... They were not able to get their system to post. 
So we went through all the troubleshooting steps. Of course, you have a troubleshooting tree that you go through and check off all the steps. Mm-hmm. And had gotten down to motherboard replacement. It had come to that. So, okay, I'm going to place you on a brief hold while I set up for this on-site replacement. Obviously, the customer can't replace the motherboard themselves in their laptop. Right. And they're portable. So we're going to send a technician out to sure. replace your motherboard for you. Of course, the phones that we have, though, have hold, but they also have mute. And Dell did not like us to put people on hold because people don't like to sit there and listen to hold music. Apparently, Dell thinks they would rather listen to dead air. So I put them on mute. And when someone is on mute, they can't hear me, but I can still hear them. As soon as I put them on mute, the person that was talking had somebody talk to them and say, so they're going to replace your motherboard? Yes. And you managed to get them to do this after you spilled water all over it? Yes. Oh. Oh, wow. This customer in particular did not have a warranty that covered accidental spills. Mm. And I just heard them say that. So, right. So what do you do then? What do you do then? That was my question. So I called a manager over to ask them. And the manager said, get back on the phone and tell them that you are not going to replace their computer. So I had to take them off of mute, tell them that they were on mute and not on hold, and that I had heard everything that they just said, and I was going to cancel their order. Oh, and they that? asked me, well, what do I do then? I said, just try to let it dry out. Wow. Or buy another Dell. I felt really bad mm-hmm. because, you know, I had just set them up to get their, their, their replacement part that would fix this issue. Right. But. Wow. Yeah, watch what you say. This call can and will be monitored. And that's for, the thing, is if, yeah. if that had been caught on a monitor and I had just let it slide, I would have been fired. Right. Wow. I mean, it's a hard thing to have to do to like say that to a customer, but uh, luckily they didn't seem like they were super outraged. No, they didn't. They they definitely understood mm-hmm. that they were, they, they knew that they were trying to pull a fast one on it and they'd been caught red-handed. Right. So, you know, there, there was a little bit of, you know, this is really on me. Yeah. Well, you got one of the nice customers because, you know, when I worked at Walmart there for, for a while, people would try to bring anything back. I oh, mean, sure. I, I argued with a woman one time at the customer service desk that she had bought this uh, Martha Stewart living outfit at Walmart. And I said, you realize it says Walmart, not Kmart, right? Martha Stewart living is completely done at Kmart. No, no, I bought it here. And management took it back. So customer's always right. The customer's always right. Yeah. So, wow, that's interesting. That, that, was, a, that was a tough call. And mm-hmm. then, you know, we had the, the real strange calls also with uh, one person who had buried their laptop in their backyard and then asked why it would, how we could fix it to get it to turn on again. You know, there's dirt and stuff in the laptop. <laughs> Did they explain why they buried it? I don't think they really went too far in explaining that because <laughs> I think they felt kind of foolish about it. But, uh-huh. you know, they were sure going to try to get that laptop working again. And yeah. I had one lady call and describe her problem as her laptop sounded like the ocean. The ocean? Yeah. I didn't know where, where to go with that call because, you know, her laptop worked. It just sounded like the ocean. Maybe maybe the fan? Uh, it's kind of where I was thinking she was going, but I, that, that's, that's a hard opener to start troubleshooting with. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. I'll just reiterate out there for all those people who say, oh, I hate having to work at a call center. You you did get a lot of a lot of help desk skills out of working in a call center. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe not the best pay. Not but, the best pay, but, but it's you're getting paid in more than one way. Yeah, uh, you know you're getting the experience, but you're also learning the customer service skills because that's going to come up again. I 
guarantee that wherever you work, you're going to have to have some sort of communication skill. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're going to learn it. Great. Well, Joe, thank you very much for sitting down with me and and doing this interview. Uh, I I think there's a lot of great takeaways from your story, and I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. And so that's going to do it this week for Talk on Tech. Just a reminder, different ways you can get a hold of us. We have a Twitter account at TalkOnTechMCTC. You can email us at TalkOnTech at gmail.com, or you can use our new customized emails at Patrick at TalkOnTechPodcast.com or Josh at TalkOnTechPodcast.com or even Scott at TalkOnTechPodcast.com and go to the new website, which is TalkOnTechPodcast.com. Thanks a lot and have a great week.